This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is City of Segregation, 100 Years of Struggle for Housing in Los Angeles by Andrea Gibbons. City of Segregation documents 100 years of struggle against the enforced separation of racial groups through property markets, constructions of community, and the growth of neoliberalism. This movement history covers the decades of work to end legal support for segregation in 1948, the 1960 civil rights movement and CORE's effort to integrate LA's white suburbs, and the 2006 victory preserving 10,000 downtown residential hotel units from gentrification, enfolded with an ongoing resistance to the criminalization and displacement of the homeless. Andrea Gibbons reveals the shape and nature of the racist ideology that must be fought in Los Angeles and across the United States if we hope to found just cities. City of Segregation, 100 Years of Struggle for Housing in Los Angeles by Andrea Gibbons, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. A man walked into Pittsburgh's Tree of Life synagogue and massacred 11 Jews. He was apparently motivated by a belief that Jewish people are conspiring to destroy the white race by way of orchestrating mass immigration. In particular, he focused his ire on Hayas, the Jewish Refugee Resettlement Agency. He wrote, quote, Hayas likes to bring invaders that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in. This is a conspiracy theory with deep roots in America's violent white power movement. Today, it is also propagated by Fox News and the White House, where the name George Soros has become a ubiquitous and all-too-obvious euphemism. My guest today, Kathleen Ballou, explains that the white power movement that took root in the 1970s has always been fixated on the demographic threat that they claim immigrants pose to white America. Her book is Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement in Paramilitary America, from Harvard University Press, and it is a chilling and indispensable guide to the history of the ugly reality that we face right now. The contemporary white power movement and mainstream right wing have long shared an obsession with not only immigration, but also a host of things that they see as threats to white demographics and reproduction and even survival. The mainstream conservative movement had in the past distinguished itself with an attachment to proxy issues that made racism plausibly deniable, in contrast to the white power movement's explicit call to, paraphrasing their infamous slogan, secure the existence of white people in a future for white children. Today, however, the mainstream right wing and white power far right are rather hard to distinguish, as Trump claims that a caravan of Central American migrants is full of criminals and unknown Middle Easterners, and Iowa Congressman Steve King declares, we can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. This hatred from the heights of power is an almost inevitable outcome of decades of mainstream conservative politics, and really, in many ways, liberal politics too, that primed voters for racist appeals. Ultimately, as the contradictions of American racial capitalism mounted, those voters preferred to be addressed directly, by way of a megaphone rather than a dog whistle. 
Ballou's book is critical reading for anyone who wants to understand the roots of today's white power right. In the apocalyptic, heavily armed, insurrectionary movement that formed in the wake of the war on Vietnam. As I'm recording this, I have no clue how the midterms shook out. But it's now indisputable that Trump's Republican Party has made an extreme form of xenophobia that draws from the very white power far right that massacred Pittsburgh Jews, the centerpiece of its politics. Before we get this interview started, it's remarkable and utterly gratifying that I can dedicate my time to conducting interviews like this. And I can do so because listeners like you support the podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. It's because of your support that we don't have to pay while interviews to coerce contributions. That said, we do hook you up with something extra in exchange for your support. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter, which has tips for how you can learn more about the topics we discuss on the show. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hader's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more gets you a bunch of great books in the mail. And so please, if you haven't already, take a quick moment now to ensure that we can keep the dig up and running for the long haul by making a donation at patreon.com slash the dig. Okay, here's Kathleen Ballou, a professor of history at the University of Chicago. Kathleen Ballou, welcome to The Dig. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I think the place we need to start before we get to the more general and central argument of your book is with the current state of affairs. The man who perpetrated the massacre at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue was apparently motivated by a long-standing far-right white power conspiracy theory that Jews are coordinating mass immigration in an effort to destroy the white race. Explain this conspiracy theory, its historical roots, and its place within a larger right-wing American worldview. The place of anti-Semitism within the white power movement is as one part of a coherent ideology. It goes together with other belief systems, including anti-immigration, anti-LGBT rights, anti-feminism, and also opposition to forced integration as part of a worldview that has to do with this very, very tangible um, fear about being overrun, the idea that there is this imminent racial annihilation that will be furthered by these issues. In other words, the activists in the movement that I write about see um, all of these different kind of social issues as part of a threat to the race. So when we think about an event like the Tree of Life shooting, I think it's very, very important to think about it not as, I mean, it is a act of anti-Semitism, right? It's a very clearly documented act of anti-Semitism. And there's a whole history and literature and apparatus of understanding that comes with that. And I think that's important not to discount. But it's also important to think about it in relationship with other kinds of rhetoric and with other episodes of violence. 
So the alleged gunman at the Tree of Life shooting had anti-Semitic content on his social media, but he also had content that is recognizably part of what I write about as the white power movement, which is an, uh, a, a social movement that brought together neo-Nazis, Klansmen, skinheads, tax protesters, and others um, in the 1970s and has uh, carried out acts of warfare against the state and coordinated acts of violence um, since then. This is something that I've been struck by in researching my book on immigration politics and that your book really exposed in a way more dramatic way than I was aware of previously, which is that this there's this deep fear over white reproduction and demographics that pervades both the contemporary nativist movement from its inception in the 1970s and the contemporary white power movement, which began around the same time. In 1986, John Tanton, the father of the mainstream nativist movement, stated, As whites see their power and control over their lives declining, will they simply go quietly into the night, or will there be an explosion? More recently, Iowa Congressman Steve King tweeted, We can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. And then there's that's also the core of the infamous 14 words written by white power leader David Lane. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. I don't think, at least before this Pittsburgh massacre, that most people understood how deeply related the histories of the white power and anti-immigrant movement are. I think that's right. I also think that this emphasis on reproduction and on threats to the race is one of the places where we can um, begin to unravel the relationship between um, what white power activists are worried about and how they're able to reach out to a much broader range of people who share those similar concerns, but maybe not at such an apocalyptic scale. One way to think about contemporary social movements is through sort of concentric circles of activity. So in the white power movement, um, in the time of my study, which is from 1975 to 1995, you can think about this in a there's sort of a inner circle of hardcore activists, and I'm borrowing that terminology from other scholars, but hardcore for our purposes here has to do with, with level of involvement. So this is people who live and breathe the movement. They organize their lives around this activism. They marry each other. They seek each other out for basic social relationships like childcare and rides from the airport and also marriage counseling. They have organized their lives within and for the white power movement. So that's a very, very small group of people. That's like 25,000 people in the 1980s. Then outside of that group, there's another sort of 150 to 175,000 people who do um, white power activities, but not so intensely. So those are people who attend rallies, uh, purchase the literature, um, and do kind of more public-facing social movement stuff. Then outside of that, there's another 450,000 people who would not ever buy, say, a Klan newspaper, but who would read a Klan newspaper. And then beyond that, we can imagine, this is where we don't have numbers, but we can imagine that there are sort of people who share those ideologies if they don't come from a Klan newspaper, but might agree with something that a friend says to them over dinner, right? 
these concentric circles work both to send ideas out and to recruit people in. And they're one way to think about how extremist and fringe movements pull people in from broader areas of concern towards this radicalizing kind of activism. So thinking about this question of demographic change, I mean, the question of demographic change is, I think, part of mainstream political discourse for, I, I would assume, sort of an, a majority of people in the country. People talk all the time about there being some kind of flip point where people of color will outnumber white people, and at that point, voter demographics will change and the way dem representative democracy might change. And there's all kinds of politics organized around this idea of demographic change. But I think that what people often don't understand is that for people on the fringe in movements like the white power movement and the anti-immigrant movement. And I think this is also true for um, anti-Semitism that's not connected to white power. This idea of demographic change, it's not just about like changing statistics or, or, or something like that. It's attached to this very, very apocalyptic state of emergency rhetoric about the end of the white race itself. It's existential. Yeah. That state of emergency is how we get from... Um, it, first of all, it provides kind of the connective fabric between these what seem like different social issues, but it's also how you get to violence. Um, it's how activists come to think that violence is the – in the period of my study, people are talking about abandoning the ballot box in favor of the bullet because mainstream politics is seen as not having the capacity to address apocalyptic change at this level. A lot of your book is analyzing the – relationship between the mainstream right and the extreme white power far right and between the state and the white power far right. Does this worldview today being propagated on Fox News and from the White House force us to rethink this very distinction between the fringe and mainstream right? That's an excellent question. Um, this is where I have to remind everyone and myself that I'm a historian. And the period of my study ends um, after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, partly for interpretive reasons, but also because there simply isn't an archive to draw the story forward and to really examine what I'm doing um, and bring the war home for the more recent period. Um, the reason that that's important is because the archive does show us that in the earlier period, there are sort of two faces to this kind of activism and rhetoric. One is public facing. So we could think in the contemporary example about what we see at Charlottesville um, and in um, in sort of the alt-right mobilizations, um, marches on campuses, um, and sort of the, the very public... Um, and deliberately performative rally actions of this movement. The historical archive shows us that um, in the earlier period, that activity was always matched by underground organizing. So the underground organizing, and by that I mean the interconnections between people, the deliberate acts of violence, the planning and execution of violence, the way that people match rhetoric with action, those are the things that you often can't see at the time that they are occurring, but become clear through a historical study. So the thing that's different about my book is that what I'm trying to do is look not only at the public-facing actions of this movement, but at how the people who are doing those public-facing actions are also carrying out these underground activities with real violent consequences. Um, and that's how you begin to see how these acts uh, link together. Unfortunately, that's the part that's very, very difficult to see 
as it happens. Um, so we don't have a robust you know, repository of things like FBI surveillance documents, intergroup communications, a record of social relationships and marriages that show how people are related to one another for the movement um, that is organizing right now. That's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer, though, is that this sort of, um, the sense that this movement is organizing at a time when the state might be sympathetic to some of what it wants to accomplish is not new. That seems new in our current moment. And I think there are things that are new about the level of um, kind of the level of acceptance of this kind of rhetoric at the highest levels. But the last time that this movement turned violent was in 1983. That was the second term of the Reagan administration. That's not a time when um, the left was in control of the state. And in fact, um, that was a time when a lot of the anti-statism and some of the views um, held in common with the white power movement were in fact emanating from the White House itself. So the fact that they chose that movement to turn revolutionary, I think, is very material to thinking about what's happening today. Because for them, it was the moderation of the Reagan administration and the fact that it wasn't going far enough that made people really feel like war on the state was their only path forward. So while people on the left might sort of think that um, some amount of wink and nod toward this movement or even some rhetorical embrace of some of its ideas might pacify this kind of activism, I think the archive shows us that, in fact, the opposite is true. Yeah, that's a really powerful thing, I think, that you show time and again in your book, the way that the the far-right white power movement, the state and mainstream politics all all feed off of each other. And just to talk a little bit more about the immigration story you tell, Louis Beam, one of the central characters in your book, launches a Klan border watch in 1977. So this is one of the first things that the new white power movement does. And at the time, David Duke said, when our government officials refuse to enforce the laws of the country, we will enforce them ourselves. And this, I think, really importantly, is the very same sort of rhetoric that not long after animated Prop 187, the anti-immigrant referendum in California. And then after that, the Minuteman vigilante border patrol movement. And then you have Civilian Military Assistance, a group I'd never heard of, which was renamed Civilian Materiel Assistance, which was this anti-communist mercenary organization. And they actually mounted an armed foray that went two and a half miles into Mexico in 1986 at a moment when immigration was at the center of U.S. politics. Um, and on the U.S. side, they set booby traps for migrants, shot at migrants, and stopped and detained 16 at gunpoint. And just the way in which this was all very much embedded in the mainstream political culture of the time, their professed goal was to confront drug smugglers who they claimed were financing the Sanandistas. And this was, was happening at a time when the border was undergoing a process of militarization by the state. And when Reagan was hyperbolically warning that Central American communism posed an existential threat to border security. So it seems like this is this is a recurrent theme throughout your book, is is the way these these things interact. Yes. And the CMA is a particularly interesting example of this because CMA is also one of the organizations that was hired by the CIA itself um, to resupply the Contras in the fight against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. So it's an example of a direct overlap between kind of the white power um, border patrol actions as 
you know, as both performance and as real violence against people attempting to cross and state actions that are attempting to do the same thing. You know, going back to your earlier question, though, it's also significant that that's all happening in the early 1980s at the same moment that, you know, even as Reagan is extending this rhetoric against communism and warning about the dangers of flooding communists over the southern border, he's also passing IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act that extends amnesty to a whole bunch of people and to the white power movement, that looks like a betrayal, right? So um, there's the sense that even when the state is very extreme in its rhetoric against um, people crossing over the border, that is still not enough for a lot of people who really have this sense of apocalyptic racial annihilation. Going back to the earlier example of the Klan border watch, um, excuse me, Klan border patrol. Yeah, the the um, the patrols implemented by Lewis Beam in 1977 are formalizing and extending an action that also was um, even present a few years earlier in Southern California under people like David Duke and Tom Metzger. Um, and as you say, this is a very you know these that action was reported in newspapers as far away as Nicaragua. So this was not just sort of empty showmanship. This actually had the real effect of intimidating people. The other thing that is worth thinking about um, in the CMA incident, as you say, is that when when these sort of militant vigilante groups are doing the work of Border Patrol, I think there are real questions about who holds them accountable for for illegal activity. So in the CMA event, um, they did cross into sovereign territory of Mexico, um, and they did illegally detain people for, I think it was 90 minutes, held at stress positions um, and at gunpoint. So these are very, very violent actions that that often um, aren't prosecuted fully. And that has remarkable echoes later on in American history as well, because it's sometime in the 2000s that a man in Maricopa County, Arizona, a vigilante holds up a bunch of suspected undocumented immigrants at gunpoint. And Joe Arpaio, the sheriff of Maricopa County, is not yet this anti-immigrant hero that he becomes and arrests the guy. And there's a public backlash. And it's that public backlash against Arpaio making that arrest that makes him adopt anti-immigrant politics as the center of his political identity. The historical archive of kind of longer Klan activism also helps us understand how this works. The Klan uses a opportunistic model of recruitment that allows people to kind of go in and read the prevailing winds of hate in a community and figure out how to use that for action and recruitment. So looking at the Klan in the 1920s is the clearest way to think about this in some ways, I think. Um, And the Klan in the 20s is, uh, for those who may not be familiar, the largest surge of the Klan. Um, It's up to, I think, 4 million. And it's very, very sort of mainstream in that moment. It stands for nationalism and 100% Americanism. And there's these famous photographs of Klansmen marching in robes and hoods on the National Mall, but with their faces uncovered, like it's a patriotic, quote unquote, um, exercise of what the Klan is. So, but but it also is the, the time period that's the best studied by historians, and it gives us kind of the best perspective for thinking about how people use 
local sentiment. So the Klan is, as you know, and I think most people will know, is anti-Semitic and anti-Black, right? And it's that everywhere. But it's also anti-immigrant in the Northeast, where there's a lot of immigrants. And it's anti-labor in the Northwest, where there's a lot of unionization. It's anti-Catholic in Indiana, where there's a lot of anti-Catholic concerns. And on the border, um, surprising, I think, nobody at this point, it's also very anti-Mexican. And in fact, in the 20s, the Klan is involved in border patrol actions um, and other sort of state in- enforcement activities, as well as lynching and and other activities that are vigilante exercises of that same kind of violence. But I think part of what I'm documenting in my book is that there is this very, very important pivot in 1983, where before 1983, I think that this kind of vigilantism really was vigilante violence proper, which means serving the state, serving power, right? After 1983, the white power movement is not anymore interested in propping up the state. It is attempting race war. It is attempting an overthrow of the federal government and or attempting the creation of a white separatist homeland. After that pivot, I don't think we can read the um, the sort of militia activities that purport to be about simply enforcing the border laws that are already in place as a exercise of support of the government. I think that at the heart of all of this ideology, there really is a revolutionary and extreme vision of overthrow and establishment of a new racial nation. Um, That's why I argue for not using the term white nationalism for what this is, because I think when you say white nationalism, people think of sort of an overexertion of patriotism or something. The nation envisioned by these activists is not the United States. The nation envisioned is a racial nation that has overthrown the United States. So when we think about these sort of connective tissues between anti-immigration, white power, and anti-Semitism. I think white power is the the thread of this that is really opposed to, to the exercise of state rule. I want to talk more about the pivot to revolutionary violence a little later. But first, I want to ask you a follow-up on that that point you were making about the opportunism of white power. And one really powerful example of that also related to immigration that you detail extensively in the book, takes place in the Gulf of Mexico town of Sea Drift, Texas, where the arrival of 100 Vietnamese refugees leads to this really violent conflict in the late 70s and early 80s. Vietnamese had moved there in large numbers because they knew how to fish, but local fishermen saw them as an economic threat, but also a threat in other ways, even though these refugees were refugees because they were U.S. allies during the war. They were painted as this communist Viet Cong menace. And there was violence. There were boats and a mobile home firebombed. Vietnamese shrimpers were beaten. White power activists saw an opportunity here to enlist ordinary white people into their movement. Can you explain what happened there and how the Klan drew from and shaped this backlash, one that I think is little remembered today, against the relocation of Southeast Asian refugees after the war? I think you're right that it's little remembered. I think there was sort of a a segment of the public that was resentful about Vietnamese refugee resettlement. 
um, in the late 1970s. Um, and I think that that increased as the populations of refugees grew and as the as the rhetoric around it shifted. So what I look at is the resettlement of these refugees uh, who self-relocated to the Gulf of Texas um, because it had a climate and an economy that was familiar to them. A lot of people had fished for shrimp and crab in Vietnam and were able to continue that as their major industry in the United States. So the refugees who had been resettled by say, church organizations to other areas of the country located together into the the Texas coast. And this was a major demographic change for the community. Many of the refugees spoke only Vietnamese um, and had cultural practices that were really dramatically different. They also tended to pool their resources. So they were able to outfish and out... Um, kind of outmaneuver the local fishermen by lifestyle choices, um, by co-working, by um, by working um, under conditions that American fishermen didn't usually like, like storm conditions and things like this. Um, and then there were also sort of uh, problems related to overfishing and supply that exacerbated this whole situation. So what the Klan did was use that existing tension to militarize the white fishermen in a campaign of harassment against the Vietnamese refugees. They did this using a paramilitary camp that they had built in a place called Double Bayou, Texas. Um, a returning veteran called Louis Beam, who is a major figure in the white power movement, um, had served two tours in Vietnam and came back in 1968. And he used a Texas veteran's land grant to purchase the land that they would use to make this paramilitary camp. Um, and it replicated boot camp for and in for the Vietnam War and also training within the Vietnam War um, and worked to train white fishermen and Klansmen and to outfit them with military grade weapons and materiel. This was all organized around the rhetoric of the Vietnam War. So significantly, there is a there was a large out uh, sort of upsurge in descriptions of the Vietnamese refugees as the Viet Cong as communist. They talked about the Viet Cong hiding among the refugees. Um, they ignited a boat painted the USS Viet Cong at a rally designed to kind of inflame tensions around this. And as you say, it resulted in real violence against this community. And also, as you say, these people were refugees precisely because they were not the Viet Cong. And in fact, several of the people targeted had served in the South Vietnamese army or had worked as American allies during the war. So this all ended actually quite positively because the Vietnamese fishermen came together as an association and with the help of the Southern Poverty Law Center filed a suit seeking an injunction against Klan paramilitary training um, and harassment. Um, and this all ended with a court injunction prohibiting uh, parading in public with firearms and a bunch of other um, activities that were seen as amassing a paramilitary army, which was against the law in Texas. This event actually is sort of a precursor to the white power movement proper, which really unified in Greensboro in 1979. Um, but, but white power used this paramilitary infrastructure to sort of bring together and ignite um, momentum such that it could uh, really outgrow in the wake of this decision. And one way to note this is that Lewis Beam, after this injunction, doesn't just stop what he's doing. He relocates to Hayden Lake, Idaho, and begins to do work there with Aryan Nations. This scapegoating of, of refugees is 
really remarkable because we see this time and again, this blowback from foreign wars against the refugees who those wars create has become central to American politics again today with Trump's demonization of Central American migrants fleeing a long-running disaster in large part created created by Reagan's dirty wars in the region and other policies, and also Syrians fleeing a Middle East that George W. Bush plunged into violence. I think that's right. And I think that the historical literature on immigration and anti-immigration bears that out through the kind of the whole of the 20th century that um, often the people who are demonized by similar kinds of rhetoric are coming to the United States precisely because they are displaced by U.S. foreign policy and war. Um, thinking of the work of Jesse Hoffman Garskog, but there are others who have written precisely about that correlation. You write that the central fear of the white power movement of the 70s and 80s was that a so-called Zionist-occupied government would, quote, eradicate the white population through interference with the birth of white children, through interracial marriage, rape, birth control, abortion, and immigration. And the flip side of this threat posed by non-white reproduction, immigration, and miscegenation for the white power movement is the centrality of white women bearing white children. And this has extraordinarily deep roots going back, of course, to a black man having sex with a white woman being a foundational prohibition underlying slavery. But you write that after the Supreme Court's 1967 decision in Loving v. Virginia, which ruled anti-miscegenation laws unconstitutional, that the popular white American concern with white women's sexuality, reproduction, and motherhood continued under less explicit guises. The, the difference with the white power movement, you write, is that, quote, social issues with implicit relationships to white women's bodies in mainstream society were made emphatically explicit. Can you explain the relationship between mainstream conservative politics around white womanhood and the family and those of the white power right, how they developed in tandem over time? So one of the interesting things about Loving versus Virginia is that the polling done around that decision shows that not only did people seem to really change their minds about their willingness to support interracial relationships, but that they seem to have also disavowed that they previously disagreed with them. So the polls done at the time that Loving versus Virginia is decided show that people oppose interracial marriage. But afterward, they respond to public opinion polls saying um, that they are okay with interracial marriage and also that they had never opposed it to begin with. So historians approach <laughs> polling like that with, with some skepticism because huge changes in how people see social issues um, – sometimes reflect actual change, but often reflect simply a change in what has become acceptable to say to a pollster over the phone when they call you at your home, right? They, I, I think that one way that the history of the white power movement is helpful for understanding the current moment is that it really shows us where overt racism relocated during a time that a lot of people had very dearly held ideas that the country had somehow moved beyond race, so I'm thinking not only of the left and ideas of multiculturalism and the post-racial, um, 
but also the right, the way that colorblind conservatism was also a sort of a fiction of post-racial identity in its own way, right? And we can see that in the way that people of color are still flocking to the Republican Party um, in large numbers in the 1980s, 90s, and even today. I think that looking at... To the Democratic Party? No, to the Republican Party. Um, people I think, of color? Sure, yeah. I think um, there's new historical work showing that people uh, people of color are are very important parts of the Republican Party from Reagan forward and even before that. Um, this is a new area of historical scholarship, but I think it's becoming very, very important. I think that white women's bodies are one way to think about how race has worked through American history. Because in order to propagate a white race, you have to produce white babies, right? So the laws around interracial marriage have always been the strictest when they are applied to white women and to white women's behavior. White men were not subject to such scrutiny, often because the um, the interracial relationships of white men could be seen either as part of a, a sort of system of violence that worked to, to keep people in line or as directly profiting them as under slavery, right? Like producing further profit. White women having interracial relationships and interracial children were sort of seen as tantamount to racial annihilation in the doctrines of white supremacy. And I'll just large parenthetical note there that um, that is an argument that is sort of ideological and actually the real occurrence of interracial relationships, even under slavery and Jim Crow, seems to be much more pervasive than people often think in the new historical scholarship. But I think... In the white power movement, you get the sort of distilled essence of a lot of what's happening in the Cold War more broadly, um, and certainly in in various regional arguments around white women's reproductive behavior, which is that the function of white women to bear and raise white children is somehow directly tied to citizenship, and that opposing things like birth control or abortion are are implicitly in the mainstream, but explicitly in the white power movement tied to this project of white women in the home producing and raising white children. Now, for the movement that I'm writing about, this is an, an urgent question, right? This is about the, the annihilation of the race if they don't produce white children. And they write things like, It'll, there'll be a, a, a photograph of a beautiful white woman with an infant, and the caption will say something like, if this woman doesn't produce at least three white babies, she is speeding her race along the path to extinction, right? It's not just like you're not being a good woman. It's you are speeding your race along the path to extinction. Now, the idea of childlessness as being associated with not being a good woman is all through mainstream political and cultural materials. I mean, not only in the Cold War, but right up to the present. Like there's a there are rhetorics around pregnancy and motherhood that are still with us today that have those connotations. But this idea about like speeding your race along to extinction, that's where we can use the fringe to see explicitly how these ideas of race are linked with ideas of reproduction in the mainstream. I want to turn to your book's central argument now, which is that the white power movement was profoundly shaped by both its participants' experiences as soldiers in the war on Vietnam and also the way that that war reshaped domestic politics. Explain your argument and how the failed anti-communist military campaign in Vietnam laid the groundwork for a revolutionary paramilitary campaign at home 
within which anti-communism and racism were inextricably linked. So the Vietnam War did several different things for white power activism in the United States. It first of all created a narrative of government betrayal that created a, a way for previously feuding activists to get in the same room and to align them in the same kind of violent project. So it brought together Klansmen, neo-Nazis, radical tax protesters, white separatists, um, people who follow white theologies and skinheads in common cause against the state. Another thing that the war did was use um, the sort of the instrumental power of veterans training and material and weapons to uh, organize itself culturally and to shape and augment its violence. So people used the Vietnam War weapons to carry out anti-civilian actions, used the narratives of the Vietnam War to talk about what they're doing, and also created kind of a symbolic and cultural use of a Vietnam War narrative to shape their activism. One way to think about this is that in the period of my study, um, there's one image that sticks with me is a picture of a man wearing a clan hood sewn out of camouflage fatigue material. But a lot of people switch from white robes and hoods to camouflage fatigues and start doing things like paramilitary marching in formation, um, obtaining stolen military weapons, um, and using their own sort of paramilitary command structure to shape their violence. The other way that the Vietnam War becomes important to this movement is as evidence for what they say is the fundamental betrayal of government. So the Vietnam War becomes evidence to them in conspiracy theories, including um, the idea of the Zionist occupational government or ZOG or later the New World Order as a way of giving credence to the idea that the government is corrupt and cannot be redeemed through political action, but has to be faced through radical social activism instead. This idea that there's this profound betrayal of soldiers in in Vietnam is is not something that that just exists on the far white right white power fringes, but is recapitulated in the language of Ronald Reagan and George Bush, this idea that soldiers were not allowed to win the war. And then also through the now ubiquitous presence of POWMIA flags on basically like every government building in this country, which is founded in the conspiracy theory that the U.S. has secretly left POWs overseas. So there, the the white power movement is, again, using the strategy of sort of tacking to the prevailing winds using a narrative of the Vietnam War that is incredibly persuasive to a whole lot of people. And the narrative that people like Lewis Beam tell about the Vietnam War, about veterans being wronged, about betrayal by the state, about corruption, about POWs, this entire line of argument is not unique to the, the white power movement. And in fact, is the prevailing narrative trope that still is used um, in, I mean, it's in every Vietnam War movie that you see, right? It's the prevailing way of organizing a Vietnam War memoir. Historians have argued that it is a distinct narrative form that takes hold 
um, after the war in the 1980s and works to to create a certain kind of politics around representation of the war itself. So the, the, the white power movement there is using that kind of narration of the war for its own ends. It's also capitalizing on a larger current in the 1980s of just paramilitary cultural form, right? So historians have talked about how in the 1980s, paramilitarism itself is sort of a cultural groundswell. And we can think about um, paintball courses, um, paramilitary magazines, war movies. There's a whole nexus of paramilitary activities in the 80s that are, are cultural um, and not sort of actualized. So what white power is doing is using both of those threads to create this very real and violent activism that has a real body count. One of your book's most important insights here, I think, is its exposure of, of the deep relationship between state violence and right-wing violence and between state ideology and right-wing ideology. You write, quote, the story of white power as a social movement exposes something broader about the enduring impact of state violence in America. It reveals one catastrophic ricochet of the Vietnam War in the form of its paramilitary aftermath. It also reveals something important about war itself. War is not neatly contained in the space and time legitimated by the state. It reverberates in other terrains and lasts long past armistice. It comes home in ways bloody and unexpected. What was it about this particular war that shaped the particular sort of white power paramilitarism that took root in its wake? You know, I came to this project because I wanted to write something about truth and reconciliation and the way that the United States has and has not come to grips with its legacy of racial violence and racial terror. That led me to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that concluded in 2005 in Greensboro, North Carolina, where the community was really seeking to better understand an event in 1979 where Klansmen and neo-Nazis had opened fire on a leftist demonstration and killed five people, um, and subsequent trials had not returned any convictions of the gunmen, even though they were captured on videotape. One of the interesting things that people said in this TRC um, people who were perpetrators and also people who were just affiliated with the Klan and Nazi groups that were there is along the lines of, I killed communists in Vietnam. Why wouldn't I kill communists in the United States? Now, that idea represents a profound collapse of meaning in several different directions. It mixes up home front and battle. It mixes up wartime and peacetime and also mixes up different kinds of communist enemies, people abroad, people in the United States, people of different race. It struck me as such a profound way of thinking about the impact of warfare. Um, and then when I got into the historical archive, it turns out that surges in clan activity correlate more consistently with the aftermath of warfare than they do with any other factor, more consistently than poverty or anti-immigration or um, economic, economic um, up and down swings or um, other factors that historians have used to explain why the Klan should mobilize at a particular time. Now, setting aside the fact that there are real differences between those waves of Klan activity, there's literature that bears out that 
there are just moments of increased violence after warfare throughout the long 20th century. And it's not so simple as veterans coming home because the people who are carrying out these upsurges of violence are of all ages and all genders. So it's not just that people come home from war and keep going like Rambo, although I think we do see some examples of that in the archive. I think it's that there is a real relationship between state-mandated violence of warfare and the ricochets on the home front afterward. Um, And I think we haven't often enough thought about and really untangled how war comes home. Now, when we're thinking about Vietnam, there are some really escalated ways that this becomes an urgent question. One of them is simply the technology of killing is so much better in the late 20th century that um, an act of violence carried out with a military-grade weapon from the Vietnam era will simply kill more people than an act of violence carried out with a military-grade weapon from, say, 19... I don't know, 1920. The other thing about the Vietnam War is that there is um, a sort of apparatus of rhetoric and training around Vietnam that encourages dehumanization, both along the lines of sort of ideas of indistinguishable enemies um, and civilians, and along the lines of racial dehumanization and sort of the way that Uh, people in training for the Vietnam War are encouraged to think about killing as part of a body count or a um, extinguishing vermin and other kinds of of doctrines that have to do with dehumanization in order to augment body count. All of that shows up in the sort of white power approach to killing um, after the Vietnam War. And then another way of thinking about this also has to do with the post-Vietnam War technologies that allow organization of asymmetrical combat. And this one is trickier because um, people in the white power movement will tell you that their turn to cell-style terrorism has absolutely nothing to do with Maoism and isn't derived from communist tactics and absolutely is not from the left. But they, they say they're taking it from the U.S. Army. I think I think the historical record bears out that this is a complicated relationship in which the left and the right are taking strategies from one another across these years. Um, and certainly the military is also honing strategies um, of asymmetric warfare, both with and against uh communist inflected movements around the world. Um, That is a longer literature that I'm happy to talk about further if you'd like. But um, the long and short of it is that part of the aftermath of the Vietnam War in the white power movement is the turn to a strategy called leaderless resistance, which is a name for what we would now understand as cell style terrorism and the idea that Um, individual or small groups of activists can act and should act without direct communication from movement leadership, such that if there is a government informant in the cell or a court prosecution, you take down just a few people and not the movement as a whole. Um, They talk about this very directly as being part of a strategy of asymmetric warfare against the state um, and as sort of a a way of using um, this idea of government betrayal to activate people in cells in violent action. Your book really shows in a lot of detail the sort of ordinary everyday existence of hardcore white power activists. And one thing I wanted to, to ask you about that is about religion, 
which was so important for many in the movement, particularly the Christian identity sect. Can you explain what Christian identity is and the role that the church and its violent eschatology played in a broader kind of apocalypticism that suffused the movement and how that compares or relates to more mainstream right-wing Christian fundamentalism? So Christian identity is a political theology that's popular in the white power movement. Um, and I I would think of it as sort of similar to dualism and British Israelism. It posits that white people are the true lost tribe of Israel and that all other people, people of color, Jewish people, everyone else is descended either from Satan or from animals, depending on the doctrine that you're using. Um, it is a violent faith that um, foretells a imminent kind of end times battle, apocalyptic showdown. Um, and really critically, unlike evangelical sects that are gaining membership on a huge scale in the 1980s, Christian identity has no rapture, which is to say that there is no moment in Christian identity where the faithful are going to be peacefully transported to heaven before this period of bloodshed and tribulations, right? They are supposed to either survive or take up arms to clear the world of non-white people before Christ can return. So what it does is cast race war and the war on the state as a holy war. And it's linked very closely to survivalism because that's one of the ways you can survive the end times and very closely to paramilitary activity because um, it justifies and in fact demands the amassing of arms and high-grade weapons, training in urban warfare, making your own landmines. People do all kinds of things to bear this out. So this is, again, a kind of activism that has a wide kind of range of responses. So it's everything from learning how to make your own soap, because one day you won't be able to get soap, all the way up to acquiring stolen military weapons from a armory. Um, all of that is part of a Christian identity sort of um, action. So it's not the only religious belief fueling the white power movement in the 1975 to 95 period. There's also a lot of sort of Odinism and um, white paganism um, that similarly lauds whiteness and white cultural accomplishments and the need to protect the white race. But I think Christian identity is important because it's so closely attached to that idea of the apocalyptic. Now, not for nothing, that again is something that was very, very um that's a very live wire for people, not just in this movement in the 1980s. Um, and I think one of the super interesting things about the early 90s is that there's a whole population of people in the United States who during the Cold War have sort of come to expect an imminent end of the world. Again, this is a utterly mainstream belief. But with the end of the Cold War in 1989 and the disappearance of the USSR as sort of the enemy in this apocalyptic narrative, right, people had fixed on the possibility of nuclear war coming from the USSR. Now, in the early 90s, there's this moment of apocalyptic belief with a kind of empty slot for who will be the villain. And I think that's one place where people are able to really recruit into the white power movement because... There's this idea that, I don't know, it's, it's sort of like an apocalyptic system, uh, apocalyptic belief in search of an enemy. And one enemy that can fit into that spot is the state. I want to talk about 
the moment that the state becomes identified as clearly that enemy that fits in that slot of of that you just mentioned you you argue that a key point of departure for how the white power movement of the 70s 80s and 90s conceived of violence as compared to earlier periods of white supremacist violence was that prior moments were vigilante in other words it was violence in the service of the state but the new movement at least beginning in 1983 was very clearly violence and revolt against the state explain your argument what happened in in 1983 what sort of violent campaigns emerged as a result and and how that differed from the sort of violence the white power violence that had preceded it i think the white power movement as a term, applies to everything after 1979, which is when Klansmen and neo-Nazis came together in an organized way for the first time and decided to pool resources, to pool actions, and to be in the same movement together. Um, In 1983, there is a real change in rhetoric and in strategy. Um, And there's also a meeting at the Aryan Nations World Congress, which is sort of a annual religious meetings slash summer barbecue held in Hayden Lake, Idaho at the Aryan Nations compound where um, people from come from all over the movement to talk to each other and create strategies and share resources. And also it's a huge social event. So they, you know, play volleyball and match up with each other and have a lot of spaghetti dinners and things like that. We have the testimony from people who were in the room in 1983, but as a historian, you also have to sort of view with some skepticism what people say in court and how it might be influenced by their own interests and things like this. So we we have some accounts that say that the movement leaders together decided in 1983 to wage war on the state. We also have the evidence of the movement itself, which after this really changed what it was doing and how it was going about doing it. One thing that happened is the broad implementation of leaderless resistance, so cell-style terror after 1983. The other thing that happened is the coordinated distribution of resources and communication networks after 1983. So they founded a uh, early series of computer message boards, keyword message boards called LibertyNet in 1983-84, and also distributed stolen money to groups all around the country to buy computers and to go online and use these networks to coordinate movement action and to connect activists with one another. So you see the there was a white terrorist group called The Order that robbed millions of dollars from armored car heists. And those activists went around the country distributing the money to different groups. The groups then bought Apple mini computers, which, you know, it's 1983, so they're not mini per se, but they're computers. <laughs> um, and then Lewis Beam, who we've talked about before, went around the country instructing groups on how to access LibertyNet and how to use it. That network then not only included things like assassination lists and, you know, uh, other illegal plans, but also things like personal ads to join groups together. So effectively, what they were doing in this war on the state right from the beginning is using social network activism to pioneer this kind of social movement activity that couldn't be prosecuted because it was working um, through cells. The other very important consequence of leaderless resistance that wasn't sort of 
planned at the time has been that it has worked not only to stymie prosecution of white power violence, but also to stymie public understanding, because leaderless resistance also feeds into the idea of lone wolves or madmen or isolated actions, Um, even when there is substantial evidence connecting these groups together, we still don't have a narrative of this as a movement. Um, So what happens in 1983 is a declaration of war on the government and a sort of organization of this movement all together in purpose and a strategy that allows it to disappear. Its disappearance, even as its members are perpetrating violent attacks, as you just mentioned, frustrates law enforcement's efforts to confront the movement. And you argue that actually the Southern Poverty Law Center's civil suits were overall more effective than criminal law prosecutions. The interesting thing about civil suits in the historical examples is just that they seem to have a much wider array of strategies that can be be employed to sort of disrupt this kind of activism. So the Southern Poverty Law Center suits have done things like seize the entire financial assets of a group, seize membership lists. Um, They've used things like consent decrees to stop groups from printing a newspaper or from communicating with one another or from organizing precisely in these ways. I think those suits have done more effective work at stemming the tide of violence than have many of the court proceedings. The, The criminal proceedings rely on a lot of things, though, that the historical archive could be used to improve, including juror education, investigatory strategy. I mean, like when you go to investigate an act of white power violence, simply having the apparatus to correctly name, connect, and explain it has not been in place for most of the court prosecutions related to this movement. And having the the resources to place these events in context with one another, I think is an enormously transformative thing that, that could be employed in the future. All of the events that I talk about in Bring the War Home were known at the time that they happened. I'm not uncovering anything in this book. I mean, the the Klan paramilitary camps were were featured on morning news magazine shows. There was footage of those camps played. Um, the Greensboro massacre became the subject of a Saturday Night Live sketch, although a deeply unfunny one. Um, most of these events were talked about on the front pages of newspapers, but somehow we have ended up with a narrative about this violence that is disconnected, that has to do with lone wolves and single actors and madness instead of social movement and organized political ideology and a relationship with history. When we have a historical framework, there is a greater capacity for public response, um, for juror education, for the way that we report these events, and for the way that we understand them. There was first after the the Greensboro shooting in 79, where, as you mentioned earlier, five people were killed in a by white power activists in a death to the Klan rally in Greensboro, North Carolina, and all the shooters were acquitted, even though there was no question that they had done the shooting. And then in this trial at the Fort Smith, Smith case in the, the late 80s, which is a conspiracy prosecution, if I remember it right, all of these major figures in the white power movement are acquitted and two female jurors actually become romantically involved with the defendants after their acquittal. What what do those two cases reveal about the broader white public from 
whom these juries were drawn. I think reasonable people can agree that romantic relationships between defendants and jurors at the very least casts doubt on the requirement of an impartial jury. So in the Greensboro trial, the state-level Greensboro trial is marked by racially biased problems in the court system, including the use of peremptory challenges, which people use to dismiss jurors without cause and to seat an all-white jury. The all-white jury in Greensboro goes on record saying things like – various jurors, excuse me, I should say – go on record saying things like it's less of a crime to kill a communist. I believe that was said by an alternate juror rather than a seated juror. People talk about the Klan as a patriotic organization and sort of bear out the idea that um, in the Greensboro altercation, there are two – I guess it's sort of an early example of like the good people on both sides kind of rhetoric. The Klan is seen as patriotic boys defending the local status quo, whereas the communists are seen as dangerous, radical outsiders. And that's not just in the jury. That's also in the people um, prosecuting the case um, in the local media. It goes on and on like this. The federal trial for Greensboro is a problem of – jury instruction sort of, and also a a problem in the way that the violence is framed. So that trial um, is to see if the gunman denied the leftist protesters their rights by killing them. And it it specifies for reasons of race, right? It's for, it has to be for reasons of race for a guilty verdict. Because the link between anti-communism and Racism is not made explicit. That trial um, also fails. So because four no, of the victims are white. Because the victims are white, and because the link between anti-communism and racism, or rather the way that anti-communism is used as an alibi for racial violence by the Klan in this time period, is not made clear to the jury. That that trial also fails to to get convictions. A later civil trial about the Greensboro shooting finds only one of the deaths wrongful out of the five, and it's for the one person killed who was not a card-carrying communist at the time of his death. So there's a pretty clear referenda that this justice system is not protecting communists the same way it protects other people um, in Greensboro. Fort Smith is a different kind of situation. So the Fort Smith trial is of 13 people in the white power movement, ranging from kind of low-level foot soldiers all the way up to people like Lewis Beam, who are clearly leaders of this movement. And it's for a variety of charges, including seditious conspiracy. It is a federal trial held in Fort Smith, Arkansas, 1987-88. And that trial has all kinds of restrictions on it. And it's worth noting, just from a from a simple read of the historical archive and the actions and rhetoric of the people standing trial, they seditious conspiracy is wholly evident by the actions of these people. They, and the juror, the jury hears about this. They see, um, they see, they hear testimony about things like plans to poison the water supply of a major city with cyanide, which they, I mean, they have the cyanide um, that's seized in an FBI raid. Um, They see laundry hampers full of military grade weapons pushed through the courtroom. It's clearly, um, you know, an, an episode where these these activists were attempting seditious conspiracy. There are a couple of problems with prosecuting. One is this fundamental issue with understanding how such a thing could ever happen. Like, how could this fringe movement ever overthrow 
the United States, which is something we can circle back to if you want. The other thing has to do, again, with the parameters of the trial and with the selection of the jury. All jurors who have even heard of the white power movement activities in this region are excluded from the pool. And it's worth noting that there was a huge high-profile FBI bust of a separatist compound very near to Fort Smith um, just two years earlier. Effectively, anyone who consumed any media in the Fort Smith area would have heard of this bust. So they excluded a ton of jury jurors um, for that reason who would have otherwise been included. They also included um, one juror who stated after the trial that um, he or she believed that the Bible mandated uh, racial separatism, which is actually a common belief in that region at the time. And then, as you say, the romantic relationships between jurors and defendants, all of these things sort of cast doubt on the efficacy of the trial. That bigger question about how could they possibly do it becomes an issue in the sedition trial because the the realism of could could these people ever hope to overwhelm the United States becomes one of the sort of lines of argumentation in the trial. And many of the defendants also give testimony along the lines of they served their country in Vietnam. How could they now be seditious conspirators against it? Um, Lewis Beam makes that argument at length in his own defense. The historical record shows that many people, not many people, but in in multiple cases, we have a uh, we have examples of people who do exactly that, who serve their country in warfare and then attempt to overthrow it in, in the aftermath. I mean, Timothy, Timothy McVeigh will prove to be another one of those examples in the 1995 bombing of Oklahoma City. And in fact, I mean, they're like, you know, how could we do this in their defense? But they have a central, the movement as a central text laying out precisely how they plan to do it. And it's a novel called The Turner Diaries, which is not only provided white power and provides white power activists with a worldview, but also a program for violent racist revolution and genocide. And in particular, it inspired the the white power underground criminal and paramilitary organization, the the Order. Can you say a little bit about the role of of that text? The Turner Diaries is bigger than just a novel that inspires the movement. It's a cultural touchstone that brings together a whole bunch of people, and it becomes a sort of manual of operations, both for the rhetoric that binds the movement together and for the material actions that it takes. So things like the Oklahoma City bombing are drawing directly on the Turner Diaries, and indeed, Timothy McVeigh um, distributed and sold the Turner Diaries at gun shows. The Turner Diaries also just shows up all over the place in this movement as a recruitment mechanism and as a sort of set of organizing ideologies. So they kept a stack of 20 to 30 copies of the book at the bunkhouse where they trained members of the order. It shows up as a free, freely distributed um, in North Carolina to members of the White Patriot Party. It shows up in mercenary bookshops in Southern Africa. This book shows up all over the place, and it's partly because it answers this fundamental question, which is, how could a fringe movement possibly hope to overthrow the largest super state, arguably, in the history of the world, right? Especially after the end of the Cold War, when we no longer have the USSR, which actually is part of how the Turner Diaries proposes that this happen. But how could, as I think in the Turner Diaries, they put it like this, how could a gnat 
hope to assassinate an elephant, right? It's sort of the ultimate example of asymmetrical warfare from where these activists are sitting. So the Turner Diaries works to fill this in and lays out a way that this could theoretically happen. The Turner Diaries purports to be, the form of it is sort of a dystopian novel that is a recovered quote-unquote diary of one person in the white war on the government that is found after this person's death in a suicide bombing at the end. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alerts for the turn of <laughs> Found in the end of, uh, after he has flown a nuclear warhead into the Pentagon and brought about the successful, um, you know, takedown of the United States. It's set in a future world where there is a deeply, deeply anti-Semitic depiction of sort of a Zionist occupational government that has um, taken over the United States government and also world government structures. And what they lay out is sort of an asymmetrical guerrilla war that uses acts of violence to gradually awaken the white people um, and bring more and more of them into this project. Um, And then eventually they seize enough nuclear weapons that they are able to provoke a Soviet counterattack and therefore win. (laughs) Um, They overthrow the United States and then um, carry out a program of um, genocide and chemical weapons and biological weapons that annihilate first all people of color in the United States and then all people of color in the world. So it's it's an outline for how to achieve an all-white world. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is They Said No to Nixon, Republicans Who Stood Up to the President's Abuses of Power by Michael Konsowitz. In more than 3,000 recorded conversations, the Nixon tapes famously exposed a president's sinister views of governance that would eventually lead to his downfall. While many are familiar with the Republicans who turned against Nixon during the final stages of the Watergate saga, They Said No to Nixon uncovers for the first time those within the administration, including Nixon's own appointees, who opposed the White House early on, quietly blocking the president's attacks on the IRS, the Justice Department, and other sectors of the federal government. Culling from previously unpublished excerpts from the tapes and recently released materials, delving into the abuses of power surrounding the Watergate era and showing how they were curbed, They Said No to Nixon sheds light on the significant cultural and ideological shifts that occurred within the GOP during the pivotal 1970s. Consowitz deftly demonstrates how Nixon's administration marked a decisive moment that led to the rise of modern conservatism and today's ruthlessly partisan politics. They Said No to Nixon, Republicans Who Stood Up to the President's Abuses of Power, by Michael Consowitz. Out now from University of California Press. The next critical juncture in the story that you tell after this 1983 pivot towards revolution against the state is in the 1990s with the militarization of law enforcement. For the white power movement, that was most salient in the deadly sieges at Ruby Ridge and Waco. Explain the shift that took place in law enforcement, these two sieges, and 
how the white power movement and the emerging militia movement viewed them. First of all, let me just uh, just state for people who might not be familiar that Waco is not part of the white power movement proper. Waco is a siege of federal government agents against the Branch Davidians, who are a apocalyptic cult, but they are a multiracial community and not properly white power or white separatist. I will note that Waco was described in the white power movement often as if it had been part of the movement, which is to say only the white victims are listed and named and photographed um, within white power movement publications. So effectively, it does work as part of the white power movement story. So significantly, Ruby Ridge and Waco in the early 1990s become important to to the white power movement and also to a whole bunch of other people in the American mainstream because they are really visible and highly discussed examples of the militarization of American police forces and their use on civilians. Now, it is worth noting that American police forces had been using militarized violence against American civilians long before these events, but these are the first sort of major moments where they're using them against white families on television. I think a lot of tactics that are um, part of the story of paramilitary policing are used and indeed perfected in urban communities of color long before these events take place. Which is an incredible irony here, that the racism that pervaded American politics and the criminal justice system in the post-civil rights era is precisely what helps create the paramilitarized police forces that ultimately become demonized by the racist white power movement. That's right. I think Ruby Ridge is the best way to understand this as kind of an iconic clash between two strands of paramilitary culture, one being the white power movement that has operationalized around the paramilitary structures and weapons of the Vietnam War and has declared war on the state, and the other being um, paramilitary policing, which has turned towards the exact same set of strategies, weapons, training, um, procedures, etc. And for me, the evocative image of the Ruby Ridge standoff is a moment when, so it's a white separatist family on top of a mountain. They're trying to arrest the father, Randy Weaver, for possession of a sawed-off shotgun, and they end up um, exercising paramilitary policing against this family um, and killing the mother and um, one of the children in the process. So it becomes a huge martyrdom story for the white power movement and a recruiting story for the white power movement. But for me, the iconic moment is at one point, a, a group of skinheads is trying to resupply the weavers with weapons and is driving up to the cabin to give them more weapons. And the skinheads are apprehended by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And one of the skinheads is being arrested by one of the ATF agents and is on the ground and the agent is kneeling on his back. And in this photograph, uh, both of them are wearing the same camo fatigue uniforms. So there's a way that these two arcs of paramilitary culture are really clashing together, but but deriving from the same set of kind of cultural and historical factors. And it's like a second blowback in the way that Vietnam was an initial ricochet. The paramilitarization of domestic policing ricochets back once again to the white power movement. Yes. And there's a long history there for people who are interested about how paramilitary policing itself is formed through counterinsurgency warfare and and, uh, strategies used particularly by the Reaperets in Vietnam. But that too is a circulation of the Vietnam War home again. 
let's finish by by talking about the the 90s amidst Ruby Ridge and Waco this militia movement emerges and conventionally it's described as something that's distinct from the white power movement of the 80s but your argument is that it is very much a continuation of it explain your argument and why the white power movement underwent this metamorphosis Yes. I think the best way to think about this is that the militia movement is not the same thing as the white power movement, but it is an outgrowth of the white power movement. And we see the switch to militias happening before the 90s. In 1989 and even earlier, people are starting to organize instead in militias. Now, there are several reasons for this. Um But one of them has to do with, again, trying to evade government prosecution and trying to tack to the prevailing winds in order to mobilize um, cultural currents that they think will yield membership. We can trace the movement of people, guns, weapons, excuse me, people, weapons, money, ideology, et cetera, and memberships directly from white power groups into militia groups. I mean, one of the reasons that Randy Weaver is finds himself um, besieged by the government at Ruby Ridge is that they were trying to make him an informant because the FBI was already trying to monitor militia um, surges in the Pacific Northwest before Ruby Ridge. But certainly one of the effects of Ruby Ridge is this enormous inflammation of the militias. And one way to see how opportunistically the white power movement is trying to use this is that Lewis Beam turns up right after Ruby Ridge speaking about the need for activism as though he has just now come to this movement and hasn't been in it since at least 1968. He shows up after Ruby Ridge saying something along the lines of like, I'm just trying to raise my children and plant my garden. But this, you know, Ruby, uh, Vicki Weaver's death at Ruby Ridge makes us all called to, um, to respond and, and face down this government threat, right? So, By presenting himself as somebody who has just now become an activist, what he's trying to do is occlude the ties between white power organizing in the 80s and militia organizing in the 90s. And again, this strategy of disavowal and disappearance really works for them because the militia movement is able to present itself as as though it is occasionally not racist, as though it is occasionally not part of this same kind of activism. Now, As I said, the militia movement is much larger than the white power movement before it. And I think that there are militia groups in the early 90s that are not cleanly affiliated with the white power movement in the ways that I'm describing. I think that people could be part of a, say, a Christian patriot group that is not overtly racist. But I think in many cases, they are covertly racist. And in many cases, they are directly tied to the white power movement. Uh, groundswell of the 80s. Um, And I think it behooves us in trying to respond to these things to look for the connections rather than to take on faith that they are simply distinct. Well, a a big part of this shift that you write about in the the 90s is from the language of the Zionist occupational government or ZOG to the notion of a new world order, which makes the state a the American state a representative of this global malevolent force. Exactly. Can you explain that that shift and and what it what it entailed and revealed? 
Sure. Well, I would say too that, uh, I mean, the Zionist occupational government idea also is a globalist idea. Um, it's also, you know, it's, it's growing out of a longer rhetoric through the 20th century that is distrustful of the UN and distrustful of, um, internationalism and distrustful of kind of like world diplomacy. So the Zionist occupational government theory is that there is this malevolent group of Jewish conspirators who control the UN, the federal government, the banks, Congress, etc. The idea is that the higher up you go, the more corrupt it is. The lower down you go, the less corrupt it is. So there are a lot of groups in the 80s that hold thing, ideas like you can, um, like we'll obey the law, but only insofar as it is uh, like from the local sheriff down and no law from out from above that in the hierarchy can be trusted and things like that. In the early 1990s, there is a broad sort of affinity with a worldview like that around people who are worried about the new world order, um, not in the in the way that it is put forward um, in speeches by, say, George H.W. Bush, but the way that it is articulated as this globalist, internationalist consensus um, slash super state now that we are past the Cold War that is sort of opposed to the needs of ordinary Americans. So that idea of like distrust in the state and um, international conspiracy, it allows Zog to just become the new world order. It's treated the same way in these materials. And George H.W. Bush, when he's, you know, rallying the country for the the Gulf War, invokes the new world order of a, of kind of based on American unilateralism after the fall of the Soviet Union as the thing that's going to replace the Cold War bipolar world. And he's right describes it as a good thing, but the the far right sees him as basically admitting to taking part in this sinister plan. I think some of them see it as a code word and some of them see him as a dupe. I th- but I think, um, yeah, there's there is huge concern about it. And I think, you know, there's been interesting sociological work about the early internet and how many pages, um, web pages are dedicated in the early 1990s just to things like tracking black helicopters, which is part of this conspiracy theory. But it's a huge, like, upsurge in um, – in ideology that is not just located in the white power movement. So again, it's a place where people think that they can use this concern about, you know, about the U.S. as a super state, about the new world order um, and the unfettered power of the U.S. federal government to sort of bring people into this more extreme ideology. And again, like so many things that you're describing in your book, the, the new world order, which is a has its center of gravity on the extremist far right also has a lot of resonance in the broader right wing. Pat Buchanan, in a 1993 Washington Post column against NAFTA, wrote, quote, already this spirit of America first has forced both parties to address illegal immigration, to back off the new world order, to cut foreign aid, to get out of Somalia, to stay out of Bosnia and Haiti, and to deep six the notion of a new world army with U.S. troops permanently consigned to his excellency, Boutros Boutros Ghali. Wow, that's a good piece. One way to think about how how a fringe movement can impact the mainstream is to look exactly at Pat Buchanan and the way that many of the presidential platform 
elements um, brought up by David Duke make their way into the Buchanan platform, and then many of the Buchanan platform things make their way into the George H.W. Bush platform, right? There's this slide from extreme to mainstream that people like um, sociologist Sarah Diamond have, have documented as really impacting the way that mainstream politics works in the 90s. It really does come into the way that people think about things. The end of your story the is with the most lethal outcome of the militia-centered white power movement, which is the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City, which killed 168 people. It was directly carried out by Timothy McVeigh, a Gulf War veteran with deep ties to the white power movement. But the attack was rarely attributed to white power politics. Why? You know, this is really something that has struck me as one of the greatest sort of interpretive failures around this history, because we have in Oklahoma City the largest deliberate mass casualty event on American soil between Pearl Harbor and 9-11, and hardly ever a narrative about what it was or what it meant, which seems to me one of the most basic functions of history. The extent to which Timothy McVeigh was a white power activist and operating in the strategies laid out by the earlier movement is to me unassailable from the historical archive. Um, And we could talk about the evidence for this in depth. I, I dedicate a whole chapter of the book to it. But in short, the Murrah building is a target that was of interest to this movement um, for a full decade before McVeigh's action. He used the Turner Diaries as um, part of the grounding for the event. He once lived with an activist who was so familiar with the Murrah building, he could sketch it from memory. Um, And McVeigh spent his life before the bombing traveling and contacting different people in this movement and sort of situating this act as an act of leaderless resistance, which is exactly what this movement said it was going to do from 1983 forward. I think that the failure in understanding comes in large part from a institutional policy implemented after the sedition trial and after the PR disasters um, that were also, of course, tragedies at Ruby Ridge and Waco, in which the FBI said that they were going to prosecute only individual acts related to white power violence and not look at ties to the broader movement. Now, that meant that from the beginning, the Oklahoma City bombing investigation was limited really to looking at McVeigh and perhaps a few co-conspirators. And because he was acting as a soldier of leaderless resistance and would not talk about his network of people and ideologies, which is, again, exactly what they told us they were going to do, um, it was never investigated as part of a social movement. So in the aftermath of the bombing, the narrative around it has also been around sort of McVeigh, um, the problem of McVeigh, this veteran, this clean-cut guy who carried out this horrible thing. People look for clues in his personality and in his past um, about why this person would do this action instead of looking for what could this action have meant within this political ideology? What could it have meant within this social movement? What did it mean to other people, right? The historical archive actually shows us a whole lot about how we can better understand this and about how we can think about this as a coordinated social movement with a coherent political ideology. When there is a ideology and a history to these acts of violence, we have a 
whole set of tools for understanding them and for learning how to better respond. And we see that very much today. There was just a New York Times Magazine story explicating just this, which is that while Islamist terrorism is read through the framework of ideology, white power terrorism is read through individual idiosyncrasies and psychologized. And, you know, we you can see it everywhere from media representation to political discourse all the way up through the way that prosecutions work. But it's everything from like I, I, I've, I, it seems to me that I see a lot of newspaper articles that say something like ISIS-affiliated terrorism, which seems to evacuate even the responsibility for figuring out if people are affiliated with ISIS or not, right? But with white gunmen, we always see psychologizing perspectives, um, the phrase lone wolf violence, and thinking about actions of violence as the acts of madmen, right? Which excavates responsibility both by the perpetrator and to the larger social movement and to the state insofar as we can think about things like the ricochet of warfare. So very last question. Your book ends with the Oklahoma City bombing. Where did the movement go next? And how does the history, the story you tell, help us make sense of the far right today that has become so powerful online, in the streets, and in many, many ways very brazenly in the White House and on Fox News? I think that we have a few examples in very recent history, and I'm thinking here of the shootings carried out by Dylan Roof and allegedly by Robert Bowers, where we see radicalized white power activism continuing to impact our current moment. I think that the history indicates that we have not seen a decisive stop to any of this activity um, and that we're dealing with a movement that, as I said, has been using social networking and online activism effectively since 1984. So decades before people had heard of Facebook, these people were pioneering these kinds of radicalizing activism um, and, and other social structures on message boards and online. We have not had any decisive stop to this kind of violence. And I think the wink and the nod ranging up through implicit rhetoric from politicians that echoes the talking points of this movement are very, very concerning because, as I said, this movement has enormous capacity for violence. And then the final thought, I think, is just that acts like the Oklahoma City bombing are never imagined as the ultimate crux of what a movement like this is trying to do. These acts of violence, large and small, are meant to awaken people to the rightness of what these activists think they are doing to save a race from apocalyptic extinction. We have to take seriously that feeling of emergency when we think about how to respond, because people who are, are motivated around something that urgent will not simply stop. Kathleen Ballou, thank you very much. Thank you. Kathleen Ballou is a professor of history at the University of Chicago and the author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America from Harvard University Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. 
As Marx once remarked after noting that capital comes dripping from head to toe, from every pore, with blood and dirt, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The The Dig Dig was was produced by by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing up and running. Even a few bucks is a big help. Hold up. 